Hi, and welcome to Recky Perfection. I'm your host, Rochelle Inay, singer-songwriter and recovering perfectionist. I started this podcast on a mission to figure out how we can raise brave kids, but quickly learned that one of the most important ways we can do this is by being brave ourselves. So on this show, you'll hear stories from courageous humans who figured out how to embrace failure and imperfection and live in alignment with their true selves. To me, if every person were to fully embrace their innately imperfect humanness, we would see a world that's less power-hungry and more kind, we would find more solutions to some of the world's biggest challenges, and we would live happier and more fulfilled lives, knowing that we are enough exactly as we are, not because of anything external like beauty or success. If you struggle with being hard on yourself when you mess up, which we all do by the way, comparing yourself with others, getting stuck in the creative process because of a tough inner critic, or you're simply tired of trying to stay on the hamster wheel that is this beauty and success culture, I'm here to help you stop, get off, breathe, and realize that you are enough right here, right now. From this place of enoughness, we can bring kindness and compassion to ourselves and to the young people in our lives, helping them to realize their own enoughness. I believe that when kids and grown-ups learn that mistakes are okay, they're able to embrace failure and live more courageously. On today's episode, I had the amazing privilege of speaking with Daniel Handler, also known as Lemony Snicket. He has written numerous novels as well as books for children. His books have sold more than 70 million copies and have been translated into 40 languages and have been adapted for screen and stage. You may have seen Netflix's adaptation of a series of unfortunate events for which he served as executive producer and writer. He lives in San Francisco with the illustrator Lisa Brown, to whom he is married, and with whom he has collaborated on several books and one son. We talk quite a bit about the creative process in this episode, and I left in the parts of our conversation before and after the actual interview because I thought you might find it interesting. Daniel is hilarious and so thoughtful and wise and, well, here he is. Well, anyway, hello. Hi, thank you so much for doing this today. Uh, yeah, of course. I'm flattered by your interest. Oh my gosh. It makes Are you me kidding? feel sad that all small talk now is about Zoom and microphones. <laughs> it's all the it's always I've... an awkward way to start a call. Yeah. Like all the past two months, everyone's like, anyway, Zoom sucks. Moving on. <laughs> yeah. Societal thing. So thank you just for doing this. I'm blown away that you were willing to help out. Uh, nobody like me. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't seem like a great way to begin. <laughs> but, You're not a nobody. <laughs> virtually. <laughs> um, I like I like seeing your the guitars in your background. Oh yes, I just hung those really? actually. I got uh, really bored in quarantine and I changed my whole room. So. <laughs> House. Yeah. That that white one is a base. Actually, that's a new addition to the collection recently. Very nice. <laughs> the bass player is always the coolest one. The bass players, I know. I think that that's pretty much the coolest instrument. Besides, yes. well, cello is my favorite instrument, but it doesn't look as cool on stage as bass. No, cellos look kind of terrible on stage. They sound beautiful, but this. This band I play with sometimes has a full-time cello player, and he's been through all of the cello, all of the attempts to make the cello less impossible. Wait, um, you play with a band? Um, I play with a magnetic field sometimes. I'm not. I'm like a like a bonus member. Wait, you uh, play with the magnetic fields? I do. Yeah. What do you play? I play accordion. No way! I did not know this about you. When did you start playing accordion? Um, in college. Okay. Did you play harpsichord growing up? I think I heard that from someone. No, I played, I mean, I had piano lessons. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, I like that fantasy though. That's I love the things that you hear about famous okay. people and you have no idea if they're true. A little powdered wig. <laughs> <laughs> I would still play the harpsichord every morning because- When you're like I six years old. Like... 19th century, yeah. <laughs> that is so cute. Um, so I like to start out by asking, um, what your childhood was like in terms of, did you have, um, perfectionistic or achievement oriented parents? Um, no, that is not how I would categorize them. Um, they both liked to work, I would say. So kind of, um, 
rising to the occasion of needing to go and work, I think was something that was um, the kind of trickle down, but they weren't definitely not perfectionists or um, demanding in that way. And they also, um, my sister and I talk about this actually, that we both feel like we learned a nice kind of work-life balance for them. They never um, pretended that their jobs were so important that you neglected your family in some way. They work, both work really hard and they work really long hours and things like that. But there was never this um, kind of, oh, I have to get up in the middle of the night and, and save the world that is often, I think, with some professional people. Yeah. And you don't feel like you have that either? No, I don't think so, though I guess I would be the last person to ask. <laughs> but um, if, yeah, I don't, I mean, I, I, I really like to work. So if I don't work for a long period of time, it kind of stresses me out and makes me nervous. It yeah. feels like not eating or something. Like, but... do you take vacations? Because that makes me feel weird, like when I take a vacation. <laughs> I do, but then when I'm done with my vacation, I'm ready to work. You know, I don't, I, um, so it's, so yeah, I do take vacations. It's, um, but, um, I didn't for a long time and I was realizing that was pretty unhealthy. So, mm. yeah. so I'm curious as you were growing up, um, if there was a teacher or someone in your life who sticks out to you as having a major influence on you? Well, a bunch of them. I had some really good teachers, um, I had two really good and different um, English teachers in high school who were super influential on me. Um, one of them was um, a literature teacher and she in many ways kind of followed, I think, an archetype that we know. You know, she was very passionate about literature. She had kind of all kinds of kind of showmanship tricks to kind of get everybody engaged and interested, but she was a really serious, um, engaging thinker and um, speaker. And then the other one was a writing teacher and he was kind of on the other end of the spectrum um, in that he was very detail oriented and very um, thorough and not afraid to be critical at all. So they were both really important to me, but I also, I mean, um, I had a biology teacher who would put on classical music in his office kind of an hour before class. I had his class after lunch and people would kind of trickle in and he was, that was just great to kind of be with an adult and be off duty in a really fun, kind of fun and respectful way. I think some teachers who pride themselves on being off duty, you're like, I'm the fun one. You know, like, I'll tell you a dirty joke and talk about drinking or something. And he wasn't like that at all, but he was just like a regular person. And it was kind of nice to be in that space. And I think about him a lot. Um, and then in college, I had um, a pair of uh, professors who were really, um, I mean, kind of almost parental to me in many ways. And they were married to each other and they lived in a house um, in the middle of a campus and I spent a lot of time there, a lot of time there. They were really lifesavers. Were they both writing professors? No, one of them was a writer and she, I mean, I arrived in college and I knew I wanted to be a writer and I immediately signed up for a class that the famous writer taught. And you had to go and meet with the famous writer first to get into the class. And she told me that on the one of the first days of class that we would be, we would have to go memorize a poem and then we would meet in a field and we were all going to recite our poems and i thought i guess i don't want to be a writer <laughs> like, i was not interested in that and it felt like if you want to be a doctor but you can't stand the side of blood or something i just thought oh i guess i really love writing and i love books but i don't want to do that was it the was the aspect that you weren't excited about was like reading the poem in front of people I guess just the whole kind of performative aspect of it, you know? I mean, I really love poetry and I loved poetry then. And um, I'll read a poem to someone if we're like in some situation that seems to call for, but there was something about kind of performative artiness that was not interesting to me. I wanted someone to teach me how to write. I didn't want to teach how to be a um, glamorous artist in the world. Everyone has that fantasy already. You don't really need to develop that. <laughs> 
<laughs> I've actually been thinking about that because I write songs and um, as a songwriter you're usually expected to also perform your songs but I'm much more excited about the writing than the performing Uh, and I was thinking about you and as an author like you don't have to perform your books for anyone (laughs) no it's really a delight (laughs) that's so nice (laughs) I mean it's a really you end up with a very intimate experience right I mean people go to readings and people read books in a book club or read out loud to each other or something like that. But most literature that people, the way most people have literature is a solitary experience. And it's very intimate. And it's, um, it's a different, it's really different, I think, from the, um, from kind of the communal nature of most music, right? No matter what kind of music you're interested in, it's, um, you have probably gone to see it or hear it with a bunch of people. And that just doesn't happen in literature. You might go to hear an author, but you're not actually going to experience the the literature then you're going to kind of see the personality or whatever yeah so you had that teacher who you really wanted to study with i I dropped that course i didn't so this was not the famous writer that i'm talking about so i i dropped that course and i was really um just a little confused because i'd wanted to be a writer kind of my whole life and i don't know what made me feel so um beholden to her philosophy that somehow i thought I guess I don't want to be a writer. And then there was a little dinner that I was on the, the list of at my college where you would be invited to dinner kind of once a year with other faculty people. And I knew I was interested in writing. And so I ended up sitting next to this woman, Kit Reed, who really became my mentor. And she said, well, I teach a writing class. Um, and my writing class is that you turn in 10 pages a week. And um, the class only meets once at the beginning of the year. So I explained this at once at the end of the year. Um, what? Only two times in a year? That's when the whole class met. And the rest of the time you had one, I think it was a 15 minute slot with her, um, where she went over your 10 pages with a fine tooth comb. And then you had to turn in 10 pages the next week. You had to write a whole lot. And she told you what was wrong with it. And, um, that was really that sounded way more what i wanted so i signed up for that and then i took the last slot which was and she would you would sit at her kitchen table and i took the last one and her husband would come home who was teaching film and literature at the university um this is kit reed is the writer and uh her husband joe reed um was teaching there and I really, and so we were just taught, he would come home and it was kind of the same experience of being kind of in a nice adult space. And um, they had a real tradition of doing that. They had a lot of people who they kind of put under their wing and who sat at their kitchen table. So I took some classes with him. I took more classes with her. And, um, but they were really, I mean, they were very socially conscious and they were very unpretentious and, um, you know, they went to the movies every weekend and anyone could go with them who wanted and they were really um, just really fun and exciting people to be around. But um, particularly Kit was just a very hard worker at writing. So um, I lost them both recently and I miss them a lot. Mm, I'm sorry. Um, but I mean, Kit's legacy, I don't even know how many books she wrote. Books and books and books and books and books. And she, she started out in science fiction and she was one of the few women of that era, kind of classical um, 50s, 60s era of science fiction. So you can find her in those old kind of sci-fi magazines that has Isaac Asimov and other people like that. Um, But yeah, she was, um, she worked every day as a writer. You know, she got up and she went to her typewriter and later her computer, she was a slow adopter (laughs) and, um, and wrote. And she figured that writing 10 pages a week was not too much to ask of an undergraduate. And that was really great for me because it made me settle down and write. And um, I didn't court the muse and I didn't, you know, not write for three weeks until I came up with the perfect word I wrote all the time. And that's how I do it now. So I still have, so it's kind of, I write a lot and then pare it down from there. Yeah, you said, you write pretty much every day right yeah pretty much i mean um i i don't write on weekends i mean sometimes i kind of will actually but but i think of myself as not writing on weekends and yeah i definitely write every day that's amazing i don't have a job 
I just, I would love to be able to just do that every day. Just, just right. Yeah. Capitalism's a bitch, huh? Yeah. <laughs> well, you you yeah. said something um, because someone had asked you about what it was like when you got your first book published. Can you talk about that? Because you said that you really, there wasn't a lot of money in it, right? <laughs> no, there was not. Yeah, my first novel sold for $5,000 after about almost six years of trying to sell it. Oh my um, gosh, six years. Yeah. And um, I was, of course, really delighted and, and nervous and happy to have my book going out into the world. But um, that, I mean, $5,000 was a problem. I was living in Manhattan. And oh. in Manhattan, you can spend $5,000 in an hour and a half if you're not careful. So, um, I, yeah, that was, um, it was scary. And it was something that had not really been um, taught to me in any in any particular way. Because you probably just thought like the goal is to get published and then when you get published, like you're making it. Yeah, and also um, being broke, which I was, was a byproduct of not getting to do what I wanted to do. So I could quit doing it and go do something else that would make me money or I could keep at it and then when I got to do it, I would make money. So those kind of the two paths that I thought were possible for me and I didn't know there was what in writing is the way more common path, which is you are published and also broke. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely most writers. <laughs> you said it's one thing to be this desperate and broke when your dreams aren't coming true, but if you're this desperate and broke when your dreams are coming true, what in the world are you going to do? <laughs> yeah, that is definitely how I felt. And um, yeah, it was a dizzying, I mean, it was a dizzying feeling. I mean, I think, it's, I think for people in the arts, um, the, who get to be artists, I think the story of kind of finding yourself as an artist and finding some professional situation that's possible for you is actually what everybody is doing at that age, except in the arts is kind of a more glamorous story and it's more often told, but, um, you know, most people, um, in the years after graduating from college or whatever other situation that they're in and kind of their mid twenties to, to whenever are just trying to figure out how to be in the world in a way that makes sense to them and, um, and seems possible. But I think in the arts, that story is told, you know, it's exciting because you, you admire someone, you know, you're like, Oh, look, he gets to make big marble statues. Like how did that come to pass? And it's like, not right away. That's for sure. And so, yeah, and I think I knew that. And I do that enough that one of my kind of self-hypnosis techniques when I was broken desperate was to say, this time was will look very glamorous later. You'll be in New York and you'll be broke and you're an artist. And later in your life, you'll think this is so romantic. You know, <laughs> like, it's just plain awful. But later, you'll think it's romantic, which is kind of true. Now I do. <laughs> <laughs> you were the struggling artist. What was it, though, that made you keep going when, I mean, six years is a long time? Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, two things, I think. One is that I really liked it. I mean, one thing that Kit Reed told me when, as I approached graduation from college, I said to her, okay, I really want to do this, and I want you to tell me if I'm good enough to do it. And she said, that's not how it works. You should do it and figure out if you like it. You know, she said, what you should do is get a job that pays the rent and then all your spare time, try to write this book that you want to write and find out if you like it. And if you don't like it, congratulations, because you're out of a career that hardly anyone gets to do. But if you like it, then, then you have to keep on doing it. And I remember I was really mad at her. You know, I was like, why don't you just tell me if I get to do it or not? Why do I have to figure it out for myself? And, um, but I mean, I think one reason was that I really liked it when I was um, broke and not published, my favorite times in life were sitting at the table and writing. And so that was one reason I did it. And the other reason is that I couldn't think of anything else to do. I couldn't, <laughs> nothing else, certainly nothing else was being offered me. And I mean, I was disconnected from many kind of small subcultures of writing. So I didn't know anybody who was writing for the movies. I didn't know anybody who was writing for TV. Even when I kind of tried to do that a few times then, um, 
it was just because I heard there was money in it, but I didn't have the faintest idea how to do that. Um, I didn't know anybody in academia. I didn't know really anybody in journalism. You know, I didn't know anybody in these um, kind of packets of writing that have often a more standard career path. So I didn't know what to do. <laughs> I mean, that was a yeah. big fear too, because I just used to think I'm placing all my bets on this incredible long shot of beginning to write fiction for a living and I have no backup plan. Like I, I don't think I'm stupid and I don't think I'm aggressively unpleasant or otherwise unemployable, you know, and I come from a privileged enough background and have a privileged enough profile that I didn't feel um, excluded from um, so many aspects of life, but I did not know how to do them and I wasn't interested in them. <laughs> so I really had no other plan. It was um, terrifying. Yeah, that is truly the experience of being an artist is just constant yeah. terror. <laughs> yeah, it's terrifying. And I mean, you um, you want to be terrified in, in some big ways, I think. Um, I mean, I like doing things that I don't know how to do in writing. Um, I'm working on a project with a museum now. I've never done anything like that before. Like it's going to be writing with like visual displays? Yeah, it's basically, I mean, it's kind of hard to describe and um, I can't really go into details about it, but I am doing a big project for a museum that involves um, a great deal of creative writing and but it involves the physicality of the museum space so it's not like i write something and then they go and do it it's that we're all working together um, that's cool it is really cool but it's also terrifying i've never done it before um so i like there's certain kinds of terror that are enjoyable well and you mentioned <laughs> that writing has joy and terror for you like there's the joy of the idea and the terror of not knowing what you're doing and it's interesting because hearing from like such a prolific and successful author from the outside, it seems like you've published so many books that you just sit down now and know what you're doing every time. Um, but it sounds like you deal with the inner critic and the fear of failure, just like everybody else does. And I'm curious how you deal with that. How do you work with it and push through it? I mean, I think there's just a certain um, kind of flat learning curve right? Do we say flat? I never know how a learning curve goes, but um, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. But, but I mean, I think there's a certain amount that you don't learn from experience in the arts. And so there are certain things that I know. And um, because of the incredible luck that I've had, I don't have um, kind of financial terror breathing down my back, which is a horrible experience that I don't, um, wish on anyone and um, is what most people's experience of being an, an artist is. But um, so I don't know that kind of terror, but I, I just, I mean, what I've always said is that when you write a certain book, it's like when you get ambitious about a recipe, you know, if you read a recipe in a magazine or something and you think I'm going to cook this and then maybe you have to go out and you buy some certain ingredient or maybe even a little kitchen implement, you know, like I need this little thing to make this thing and then you do it. And then you sit, it sits there in your kitchen for the rest of your life, that little thing that you bought that you're never gonna use again because it's only for this recipe and you're never gonna make it again. And that's what it feels like. And so I start a book and I figure out how to do it and it's all a mess of stuff and then I do it. And then it, that will never help me again. <laughs> I write a new book and I have no idea what I'm doing. And, um, so I don't know if it's inner critic so much as it's just that um, I don't I don't I don't know how to do it, and um, certainly if you look at my books, they're all higgledy piggledy in terms of kind of finding an audience or being um, higgledy piggledy. Is that the technical term? <laughs> higgledy piggledy is the term. Yeah, I mean they're all whatever the whatever happens with them. You know, they're not all super popular, or they're not all super beloved by the same people, or anything like that. And so, um, yeah, I don't. I mean, I don't know what I'm doing, and that feels like a good way. And all the artists I know who I admire certainly um, do not know what they're doing even when they're really good at it. 
Um, that feels nice. And I think it would actually be harder to say, well, I, I better go and do that thing again that I absolutely know how to do. I think that would be really boring and frustrating. Yeah. But I mean, you know, right? I, I mean, you've written songs and I don't, I bet, it doesn't make it easier. Like, you know you can write another song. Yeah. But when it's time to write a song, you're not like, oh, good thing I already know how to do it. So the song is just zipping right out. That's yeah, I know. Every single time it's a different process. Well, and one thing that I think is interesting is you talk about writing like it's just work. I, I feel like you don't kind of romanticize it. It's just like, yeah, I just show up and I just work every day or not on weekends. <laughs> <laughs> I sneak a little on weekends. Well, I mean, I think the work is the work. I think there's something really magical about literature, um, but it's not in how you make it, it's how it behaves. You know, and a book is magical in your head and luminous in your head for reasons that you don't always understand as a reader. And so as a writer, you don't get to do this thing. And I mean, there's some moments in working in various books of mine where I worked super hard on something and it went just the way I wanted. And um, those moments are usually completely invisible to the reader, which is as they should be. Mm. You know, you just get sad. You don't pay attention to my my the magic work of my sad sentences and pacing that makes you sad. The idea is that you just get sad, right? Or you find it inspiring or like you're in suspense. All these emotions that you can conjure up are not, I don't, I'm not able to kind of conjure them up myself and then just they flow onto the paper. I work hard at it. And then, and so there's definitely a kind of salary man aspect to how it feels to go out and do it. And I think also Kit Reed taught me that it's better to stay at your desk and write eight terrible pages. And then at the end of it, you think, oh, you know what I should have done instead? And then the next day you do that. As opposed <laughs> to you start and it's not going well and so you quit and then you don't do anything that day because you could do that for years and years in a row. And so many writers do. <laughs> you know, many writers work forever on a book because they quit every day. And um, I don't think that's a road to happiness. Yeah, you got to kind of face all of the dark, crappy stuff. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, when I was studying with Kit in college, right, or actually the year right after college, I was writing a novel, and she said, you know, most writers will write this kind of novel or not quite a novel because they're learning how to do it. And so it won't be that this won't be your first novel you're going to learn how to do it and then it'll be something else. And I remember that she told me about it. And I just could not hear it. I just thought like, that is so sad about all those other writers. <laughs> Obviously it's not happening to me. And then it did. That novel is not really done and certainly not published and not publishable. Um, and, and it's hard to know when you're starting out as an artist that you're going to have to do that a lot. You know, that the, that the play you started when you were 17 is not the big hit play. It's like when you accolades and get you invited to theater festivals all over the world. You know, the band that you start when you're 20 is probably not the band. It's not those songs anyway, that are like gonna make your big career. And it's hard to kind of get that through your head because you, because it would be almost impossible to keep working without some dream that something would happen. But you have to do a lot of, you have to make a lot of bad art before you make any good art. I'm struggling with that right now because I'm in the process of recording and almost finishing my first solo EP. I made mm. music with other people, but this is the first project that's like mine entirely. Right. And it is terrifying. Yeah. And I am also like putting so much pressure on it. Like it has to be perfect. And then I have to remind myself, like it's just the first attempt. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I say to students and whoever else is foolish enough to ask me for advice sometimes um i'm worried that it won't be as good as i want it to be and i always say there's nothing to worry about it will definitely not be as good as you want it to be that's a certainty you don't have to worry like you know that's like i'm going on a first date and i'm worried it'll be a little awkward well there's no need to worry it definitely will be <laughs> You know, I'm going to try skiing and I'm worried I'm going to fall down. You don't, there's nothing to worry about. You definitely need to fall. And so 
I think not only when you're starting out, but all the time, you know, you don't have to worry that it won't be as good as you want. It will definitely not be as good as you want. Thanks for that. That's comforting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Whatever album, I don't know what singer songwriter album you admire most. <laughs> you know, kind of your secret favorite, but you know, it won't be as good as that. Yeah. You know that. It's a bummer. Yeah. But, <laughs> but the sooner that you accept that, the sooner that you can just make the damn thing and then make the next thing. <laughs> yeah. And the thing is, is that whatever thing you make, someone probably was going to love it to death. It will be their thing. And you'll always be like, really? That? And <laughs> no, that's perfect. Nothing is out of place. And yes, I mean, that's hard. <laughs> Did you? I'm curious because I've heard that from uh, there's one songwriting teacher that I worked with who talked about how his favorite stuff that he like worked and worked with that he thought was his best work people were like ah, I don't care about that and then the stuff that he just churned out that he's like this is kind of a whatever song was like people's favorites like did did you feel like that with any of your work well I mean it's not a direct correspondence it just is random to me I mean not only is it random in terms of what a bunch of people like versus what just a few people like but even kind of what they what people take out of it or what they tell you they take out of it is utterly unpredictable to me. And so, you know, you make a thing and then you wind it up and then you send it out into the world and you have no idea what is going to happen. Mostly nothing. That's the good news. <laughs> <laughs> I like the idea of winding it up and then just zoom. <laughs> send yeah, it out. Well, that's what it feels because it feels fragile and you've worked really hard on it, you know? And so it just feels like one of those toys that breaks if you look at it wrong, you know, that you're winding what's an old key from 1910, and then you literally are putting it on like the, a super highway, you know, and you're like, I hope it goes far. I hope someone likes it. <laughs> and mostly nothing happens. And sometimes people hate it or, or whatever that might be, but you, um, but it has nothing to do with how you feel about it. So I don't think it's, um, it's not an inverse correlation which seemed to be happening with your teacher. You know, it's not like the things that people like most of me, I think, are my worst things, as much as that there's no predicting when it's going to happen, for sure. It does. It, I mean, it's so, art is so subjective. It's just like, however people are going to interact with it is totally up to them. And they're subconscious and they're conscious, and you just have no control. Yeah, and even with kind of what kind of day you're having, right? I mean, um, people say that all the time about, um, art, but I think often artists forget to think about it. You know, you'll just say that, that was just a song I needed to hear. I don't know, you know, like I got in my car and I turned on the radio and there it was. And like, normally I hate that song, but this was perfect. That was a beautiful <laughs> musical moment, you know, or you're like, maybe it's a stupid book, but that weekend I was on the sofa and I was, that was happy. That was all <laughs> I wanted. And that happens all the time. It's true. And then, um, you know, and then some artists will be like, oh, they didn't like it. It's like, well, maybe they were busy that day, you know? <laughs> yeah. But I always think that with masterpieces too, you know, there's some um, absolute pinnacles of art that you just are not in the mood for, right? I mean, Citizen Kane is an amazing movie, but you don't want to go home and watch it every day. Yeah. Right? And someday you'd be like, I'm sorry, Brooklyn Nine-Nine is on. I got no time for you, Citizen Kane. I do love that show. <laughs> it's really great. That's why. <laughs> yeah so i mean it, there's no you can't predict anything i know nothing thanks for coming on the podcast <laughs> so i wanted to get into um the series that uh i know you best for and i think a lot of people do a series of unfortunate events yeah i heard, of that. You heard it. i heard that one <laughs> Um, so you said in, in an interview that most children's books are about enforced fun or enforced morality, or aren't you having a wonderful time reading about this? And you never are, and it never goes that way. Um, and so you said that a series of unfortunate events is the acknowledgement of the bewildering state of affairs that is childhood. Um, and I think a lot of times we want to shield our young people from the horrors of the world. And I love that you basically have the opposite approach. Um, can you talk about why you think it's important for young people to read about the darker side of life? Um, it's it's a, such a, what we call in our household, a two drink question. But <laughs> it, I mean, here's something I think. Why have 
fairy tales endured, right? Why are some of the oldest texts we have about crazy and mostly terrible things happening under unusual circumstances, right? It's like there's, you can't find too many accounts of daily life a long, long time ago. You can find a lot about a fox that turns into a woman and drags a villager someplace, all these crazy things. And I think that they resonate. And then I, I for the same reason that folk tales and fairy tales resonate with children. And there's a school of thought that it's all kind of about the hero's journey that you see in these stories, these deep archetypes of a hero who does something and then something's in the hero's way and then the hero gets to triumph. And I don't think that's why. I think it's because they all have super bewildering premises. And when you're a child, you're trying to acclimate to a world that is constantly puzzling, right? When you're really little, you have no idea what is going on the whole time. You know, visuals and sounds and pain is coming at you and joy and delight and deliciousness is coming at you and you have, and there's no rhyme or reason for it. And as you're growing into consciousness, you know, you just learn all this stuff about, oh, you're a baby. So we're putting you in this plastic thing and we're strapping you in and we're in a, something that's moving really fast. You can see everything outside really fast. And then grandma is there when we get there. And that doesn't make any sense. And so I think a story that says, once upon a time there was a king and his daughter never laughed. And so we had a contest that all these men would come into the town and try to make her laugh. And whoever got to laugh got to marry her, right? That's crazy. Every part of that. She never laughed. Who never laughs? And then the solution is to marry her off to a man who can make her laugh. Like, who thought of that? And who would compete for that? Who's <laughs> like, you know what? I'm so good at making people laugh that I'm going to get in here and win this. It doesn't make any sense. And I think that the way in which it's senseless and the way in which people try to make their way in a senseless world in a story anyway is very appealing. And a lot of bad literature for everybody, but certainly for children, tries to say, if you do this, you will be rewarded. If you're a good person, you will be rewarded. And no matter what kind of comfy life you have as a child, you see that that is not how it goes. And not just the enormous injustices of life that come crashing down on you, but just even the tiniest things. You know, you're in the schoolyard and someone else starts something and somebody yells at you for it, right? You, you work hard on a thing, on a drawing, and it turns out terribly. And this person sitting next to you who's just better at drawing just draws something beautifully with their eyes closed. <laughs> and you realize it's just that, that all this stuff that they're teaching you about causality in the world is just a desperate attempt to keep the lid on the fact that we don't know anything and anything can happen at any time. Yeah. And I mean, we're having this conversation in the middle of like a global pandemic and we are constantly having to face that we really don't know what's going on. And I think this is an especially, this is especially a time that people can't shield their children from the bad yeah. in the world. They, they just can't. Right. What are you going to tell your kid? I mean, I have a kid and what do you tell your kid about what's going to happen this summer? Yeah. You don't know. Summer's canceled. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I heard. We don't know that it's canceled, and we don't even know what what does it mean. Like, what is what are they? What's going to happen this summer? What are we all going to do? We don't know. Yeah. And if you say to your kid, "Well, on July Fourth, the same parade that we always go to is going to be happening, and it doesn't happen," what have you done? You know, why did? Or if you say, you know, maybe if we all wash our hands the exact same way, no one would know we'd be hurt by this thing. And it's not true. And I think a story that starts with, okay, we don't know anything. And there's a lot of horrible stuff that goes on that is scary to us. And um, we don't know where it comes from. And we don't even know where it comes from when we do it, when we're the instigators of it. What, I, what I'm thinking of now is how I think a lot of parents want to use examples like or made up examples like Santa Claus and things to be like, okay, if you're good, you'll get good things. Um, and good things are going to come your way. Religion's a great example. 
of that. You know, if you are good, then you will have goodness, you know, handed back to you. And I guess I'm thinking of some parents might flounder and think, well, if my kids just believe that if they're a really good person, bad things can still happen to them, then how do I teach them to be good? And why? Like, why should they listen? Well, I mean, I think we are good for um, the, for the reward it brings for how we feel and how it makes other people feel, but not because it solves the problems of the world. And I really understand, as a parent, I certainly understand the urge to try to put life in some kind of semblance of order for the child that you're raising, <laughs> right? Because if the child says like, you know, if people can die in a car accident, how do I know that you're not gonna die when you go to the grocery store? And you have to say, I'm not gonna die when I go to the grocery store. I'm gonna be right back, right? But it's not true. And you kind of are able to say it because you're like, well, if I'm not back, the last thing anyone will care about is that I said I would be back. Um, and I understand that urge and you can't be brutally honest about the chaos of the world every second of the day. You have to believe in um, your own beautiful illusions and things that you find alluring and things that you find comforting. So I don't really um, look askance on many devices that people use to make themselves feel better, including my own. Um, but I just think that the reason why texts that have endured will endure is because they acknowledge this bewilderment. And so in writing literature, I try to participate in that tradition of bewilderment. I love that. I love that word bewilderment. I know it's a good one. It took me a while to kind of find exactly the word that I mean. And that's the word that I mean. My wife is really tired of it. <laughs> and she'll be like, what are you doing? And I'm like, I just feel bewildered. And she's like, you're not giving a lecture about literature right now. You're just here at home. <laughs> you have to use something different word. That's a good one. So I have a friend who wants me to thank you for these books. Um, oh. So thank you. <laughs> uh, you're welcome, friend. <laughs> she... Stranger. <laughs> I know, right? Just so yeah. many random people in your life right now. Um, she mentioned that they're particularly helpful when it comes to teaching resiliency in chronic trauma. Um, I'm just going to read what she sent me. She said, as a clinician and school counselor, it's the biggest problem I see in work with children and adolescents where we start teaching them ways to process and challenge their family slash abusers, which usually leads only to more pain and suffering. Instead, we should be teaching mindfulness and wisdom to judge whether emotions, rationality, or a combination of both is most effective in the situations we face. His series of unfortunate events shows that the three children don't ignore their sadness and pain, but they use their strengths to overcome, and it's not until the very end when they are safe, oh, spoilers, that they work together to make sense of it all. So I guess I'm curious if you intended to teach resiliency in chronic trauma, or if that was just a happy result of some very sad books. Well... I mean, I, I never set out to teach anything because I don't, um, that's not where literature comes from for me as a, as a, someone studying literature and reading literature, but also as making it, I don't think to myself, what lesson can I teach or what vessel can I teach? You know, instead I think, what if someone fell down an elevator shaft? That's interesting. And so <laughs> I definitely don't set out to teach that, but, um, but I also come from a Jewish family that fled pain and suffering and came to America to sit around and laugh around the dinner table. And so um, I come from a long tradition of cultural um, and personal resiliency. So I'm sure some of that kind of rubbed off, not to imply that it's an exclusively Jewish tradition because there's suffering all over the place and people are laughing around the dinner table all over the place. But I think that I would certainly agree with your friend that what appears to be the best way to um, live with trauma is to live with it, is neither to deny it nor spend all the time trying to unpack it, but kind of live with it. And um, on a scale of trauma, I've led a pretty gentle life, but things that have traumatized me and affected me um, remain with me. You know, they're not over, they walk with me. Um, and I think there's no way to 
I don't think there's another way to do it. I think there's a way to kind of pretend that's not happening, but yeah, a way to do it. Well, and it seems like the kids are constantly needing to take control of their lives, which is it's one thing that I really like that the Baudelaire children are, um, they have a lot of agency and they're always like taking charge. And um, I think it's important for kids to recognize that they have agency um, and that they can make changes for themselves in their lives. So I really appreciate that aspect of it. Yeah, I'm glad. I mean, hopefully it's true. Sometimes they're not able to. Yeah, sometimes <laughs> that's true. I mean, there's a long tradition of orphans in children's literature too. Some of the texts that we're talking about, you know, the Brothers Grimm are full of children who are lost in the forest and trying to find their way. And some of that is just kind of um, literary shorthand. It's the easiest way to make a child a hero of a story is to make sure that they're not adults hovering around them who are mindful and wise and careful and good. It's not gonna, you're not gonna have any fun with the story. <laughs> You know? <laughs> you're only gonna have fun if you're an orphan yeah if you say there's a wolf in the woods so i don't want to carry um this food to grandmother and the mother says i'm so glad you tell told me i had no idea there's a wolf in the woods like stay in the house for god's sake we're gonna deal with this i'm gonna call the wolf guy and we're gonna get in the car obviously and go around the woods and bring the food that way what was i thinking i'm so glad you told me that and i'm sorry that i didn't know that before i should have known that i never should have even suggested it that's not a good fairy tale. A good fairy tale is go, go to the woods. You were you were born to write children's <laughs> books. You truly were. <laughs> oh my gosh. One thing that also sticks out to me about the kids, sorry, I'm like thinking which, which okay. things I want to ask. It's hard to get over that. <laughs> now I'm just thinking about wolves in the woods. I don't know what to do now. Um, so it strikes me when I uh, read the books and like watch the um, series that basically no adults listen to the kids. Um, they're just constantly being ignored. And either, like the adults in their lives are either too preoccupied with their own lives um, or they're just like completely oblivious to what's going on um, to see that the kids are in trouble. And I guess I was curious if that was based on like what you see happening in the world at all. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a pretty universal experience. Certainly when you're a child, you are unable to make your own priorities and preferences primary in the minds of adults who are caring for you. Even if you are incredibly spoiled, um, you're just, that's, that's not gonna be possible. And particularly when you're a young child, the things you want are, um, you know, often literally impossible. And so, like to you fly. Yeah, or I mean, my son was really into birds when he was little. And um, this is probably a story of like breaking your child's heart no matter what. And he really wanted to bring home like a bird, birds that he saw in the park. He was like, I want to bring one home. And in a moment of, you know, I'm sure I was reading on a park bench and he was playing and he told me this thing and I was like, please just go and play so I can finish my book. I said, you know what, if you can catch one of these birds, we're totally bringing it home. <laughs> and, then, and so then he tried and it was really heartbreaking because he couldn't do it. And I also began to have a paranoia that some bird that he would catch would be some wounded bird, right? And then we'd bring home a wounded bird, which would definitely not be what he wanted. And it would die and it would just be this horrible story. Then he came to me and he said, I can't catch one. He was really upset. And I said, you know, I'm sorry. I wasn't thinking right about that. The birds want to be with their families. And we don't want to, what if I, what if someone took you away from your family? You wouldn't like it. So if you took a bird away from the family, then you wouldn't, that wouldn't be good. So I thought that would do it. And he said, we can have a whole family of birds stay in the house, <laughs> you know? And then I was able to say, you know what? If you can catch an entire family of blackbirds, we are totally bringing them home. <laughs> and then he was unable to do that. And that was kind of the end of that whole project. Um, and that's a very cheerful example of a child bringing a problem that an adult is unable to fix or unable to really hear. You know, just like my son hadn't, wasn't as if my son had a well thought out plan of keeping a family of blackbirds in his house, right? He just loved them. He yeah. wanted them with him, like thinking about them, you know? And if we, if for some reason I said, yes, of course, my son, here, I, here are 10 blackbirds that I'm putting in your room 
Like, that was going to be a disaster. Well, maybe he does have that plan drawn up now, and you're going to find it in one of his journals. <laughs> it would not surprise me to find a plan written up, but it would really surprise me to find it enacted. And so I think that, you know, and then there's far more serious examples we can all think of, which is I have this problem and I'm bringing it to you, and you're not listening to me, you're not hearing, you're not able to fix it. And I think that's a pretty universal experience. And I think actually it's also a universal experience of adulthood. It's just that when we're adults, we've kind of had it have it hammered into us that we at least have to pretend to be thinking of other people a great portion of the time, right? Mm -hmm. And so um, adult life is that same, is, is varying levels of, of heartbreak because there's something that's important to you that you want that is not really acknowledged in other people maybe you can't say it or maybe you can say it but it's so ridiculous or so impossible or so painful even that you can't it can't be made real i think you know? actually that a lot of adults maybe as we grow because when you're a kid you ask for what you want constantly and then eventually maybe you just kind of realize like you just stop asking for things like i know a lot of people who just don't ask for what they want and i often do the same thing well, and also the violent selfishness of our impulses and desires are off-putting to other people as they should be. Right? <laughs> you can't really say to someone, you know what I want? I want you to like make me lunch and then disappear for a while. And then somehow be in my favorite movie that I get to watch for a while until I get bored. And then like, I want you to have an ice cream cake hidden unless I'm not in the mood for that anymore. And then I want a glass of champagne. Like you can't. You'd just be some weird spoiled monster. But you're not base, basing this on any reality for your no, like, I mean, things that you actually I have nothing but altruistic and my desires are <laughs> pure and generous for other people. I'm just saying I've heard of others who are selfish in that way. <laughs> right. But yeah. I, I think that, I mean, that's the heartache of the world. And I think that um, the reason why the Baudelaire's aren't listened to in a series of unfortunate events is not only because it's a world in which children are not being listened to, but it's also that they're the heroes of the story. And when you're the hero of your own story, you feel unacknowledged all the time, you know? And I think it's, it's again, with kind of archetypes of storytelling, right? You couldn't have a, an action movie where the cop is like, there's gonna be a bomb. And everybody was like, we believe you. And we have an enormous team that can handle this. <laughs> No one has to worry. You don't have to break any rules. You don't have to drive over the speed limit. Everything's going to be fine. That's not an action movie. An action movie is where they're like, oh, we don't believe you. You've lied about this before. And you're like, oh, no, I have to climb the building myself. And I think that you couldn't make a great story in which the concerns are listened to. And in fact, a lot of horrible children's literature has some tiny little problem that immediately is solved to teach you that problems can be solved. But instead, what it's teaching you is that books are boring, which is a lesson that more <laughs> will get when they're young then problems are solvable i unfortunately did think books were boring when i was little yeah, that's right because you were given bad books right <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's the trouble you were only given oatmeal every day you wouldn't like food i know that worked out <laughs> there were good books too my mom listens to this there were good books as well <laughs> so as a, a teacher and a parent how do you encourage imperfection and failure wow i mean do you have to encourage it it just happens anyway <laughs> <laughs> like you don't have to i mean if you're on an artistic path or any kind of path you don't have to say like let's make sure to put failure here right there's definitely going to be failure it's more the allowing of it is what you're saying yeah well i mean i think you have to um talk about failure a lot and be honest about it and um Certainly when people are talking about the arts, there's nothing I hate more than an artist who has developed the some inevitable narrative about them. And so tells some story in which every failure was because people were failing to recognize their genius. That was the failure, right? There's never a failure that like you did, you didn't do it well. There was only the failure of no one understood what a genius you were going to be. And that's super tiresome um, narrative. For a while, I feel like it was an almost exclusively uh, male narrative, but I, but increasingly, I think more and more different types of people are unable to be insufferable in that way. So that's progress. <laughs> but um, 
but I think that you have to um, just talk, talk and acknowledge your own failures. And um, I mean, I don't teach that much, but when I teach writing, I bring in bad things that I've written and then um, I try to get everybody to bad, to write badly for a while. But a great opening exercise in a writing class is like, let's write five bad sentences. And then people write five bad sentences. They feel really either giddy with it. And then you can talk about the ways that they're bad and no one takes it personally because I told you to write a bad sentence, right? If I said, bring in your dearest piece of writing and I was like, oh, the sentences are terrible. And you're like, oh, but I don't like, oh, I don't want to fail. But you just start with easy failure and then you move on to the more difficult failures. Next lesson is bring in your best work and we'll rip it apart. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I actually when I'm, if I'm ever teaching writing in a group and it's some kind of workshop thing, I don't have people bring in work that's really important to them. Mm -hmm. um, I have people create work usually in class and then we can all just talk about it. So if I just say, I'm gonna give you 15 minutes and we're all gonna write a description of a room. Then if somebody says, I'm not sure this is working, no one's really defensive because we're like, well, I only had 15 minutes. Of course it's not working. And I think that's often better. And then I'll bring in other people's descriptions of rooms that they spent time on and we can talk about how they work. We can talk about how it does, but, um, but yeah, I guess small failures is a good way to, to do it. But I mean, I don't know, maybe this is my Jewish upbringing and I just don't, I can't think of ways in which I encourage. Um, I mean, that's it right there. Like, <laughs> I think that's perfect. Starting with, I've had that as a songwriting exercise before, like write the worst song ever. And it is really helpful to just be like, all right, I'm going to try to write something bad and then yeah. get it. I'm doing a project with some songwriters now. And when they get, when, um, they get stuck on lyrics, they'll just sing out loud, like the worst for it's often like obscene or, um, totally nonsensical, you know, but it rhymes or something, you know, like, but, but it, it fills whatever slot they're trying to fill, but it's horrible. And then, it kind of frees you because you're like, okay, not that. So we've made some <laughs> progress. We didn't know what was going to go here. And no one still don't know, but we know it's not this horrendous thing. That always seems like a good thing. And then you can go back and edit later. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, they don't keep it. But even just saying it out loud, just saying like something horrible, I think can kind of make it, it is one small step towards getting it good, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> well, I just have one more question for you. Okay, I'm ready. So I'm just wondering, uh, what is one piece of advice that you would like to offer? One piece of advice I'd like to offer? Oh, I don't know. What situation am I offering this advice? Just general <laughs> advice? Well, the podcast is about imperfection and failure and basically being brave and facing your fears. So anything in that vein or just in general, like a piece of advice that somebody said to you that was impactful? I don't know, I'm sifting through all of it. Such an enormous question. I mean, in a Lemony Snicket book, I use this thing about fear that I believe, um, which is that when you're afraid of something, you do it, you do it and then you get scared. You do the scary thing first and then you get frightened of it. Mm. I do not know how to do that by the way, but it, but it feels like the right, Stop. Action first, then fear. Yeah, but I mean, again, it's so vague, it's kind of hard to say. I don't want someone to be like, Daniel Handler told me I could run through traffic and it didn't work out. <laughs> it really depends what you're afraid of. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I mean, I think the important thing to remember if you're trying in a creative field, which I feel like is the kind of thrust of what you're talking about, on your podcast, and I don't just mean the arts, but kind of anything in which you feel like your creative mind is a part of it, is to know how deep a tradition of failure there is and how it's such a much bigger tradition than anything resembling success. You know, there's, and do you really want to be an artist who's pleased with their own work all the time? <laughs> like we've all met people like that. Are they our favorite people? No. So I think to know that when you're failing, you're participating in a grand tradition of art making and life making is really important to remember. 
I love that. And there's so much failure. Yay. All the Yay. failure. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Well, thank you so, so much for sure. being on the show today. It was very well, generous of you. for being interested. Um, I look forward to hearing the new songs you're writing on your shiny new bass. Do you play bass and guitar on your new EP? Bass, guitar, cello, vocals. Um, yeah, everything except for drums. Do not know how to play drums. Want to learn, though. And somehow amateur drums sound worse than amateur anything else in pop music. <laughs> yeah. They're like, kind of the most important. guitar can have a magic, but a bad drummer is just a regular bad drummer. <laughs> Not charming. <laughs> Do you perform with the magnetic... I'm just like, this is accordion to me. <laughs> yeah, with the magnetic field? Yes, I do. Uh, I do, yeah. We were um, we did this uh, bunch of shows in December in New York. We had a really fun time. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah, I mean, he's a really inspirational person to be near. And, wow. I mean, an incredible songwriter. I think, yeah, he's I think amazing. Absolute best songwriters. I can't believe you do that. That's You're just, like, shot up. Like, you're already <laughs> so cool. Now I'm just like, what? You're blowing my mind. Yeah, it's really fun. I mean, I tag along with him because it's so great to be near. It's so great to be near. And he said something, I guess we're already done with our conversation, but he helped me once when we were we were working on this project together. And we spent like all afternoon in this horrible diner he used to need to go to all the time. He loved working in this diner, it was just the worst. And so we'd go there and we were working on this thing and we could not do it. Everything was horrible about it. And then at the very end, we were like, well, maybe we should just try this thing. Well, we don't have time now, but we'll try this thing tomorrow. And so we left and we were gonna go get a drink. That was his thing, so he would drink like highly caffeinated tea at this diner until cocktail hour and then he would go drink cognac. So I would, and I would go work with him and then I would like have a drink with him and leave. And we were walking to the bar and he said, what a great day of work. And I was like, are you kidding? It's like, that was the worst. And he was like, yeah, but we figured out, like we know what we're gonna do tomorrow, it's great. And he wasn't being artificially happy. He just totally, he was like, that is perfect. Like, and it really, helped me yeah and then when I have a horrible day writing I'm like oh perfect this is great <laughs> yeah it's really magical because every mistake shows you that you're growing yeah and um that it's just necessary and he I mean he's a little bit older than me and his um and, and I think when you start in pop music you often are starting young so when writers are learning how to write singer-songwriters are all performing but he he just had written so many songs that he knew that you had to write terribly many, many days. Oh, that's was, amazing. You're already doing that, you know? And it's that's a real gift to know that. And he's great that way in the studio too, because it's all in perfection and his recordings are so magical and they're so magical because he makes a lot of people feel really comfortable and because they'll just try something. And not only with me and I'm not that great a musician and so I'm really happy that he makes me feel like I can do whatever I want and we'll be fun and we'll figure something out. But I've seen him just transform engineers and he'll just go in and they'll say, I can't get rid of this, like hum, I'm moving stuff over and he'll say, play it for me. And then, he's, and then he'll just be like, like sample it. And we'll like take it down a notch. And so it's a hum that sounds the same as the bass. Oh, wow. And the next day we'll come in and the guy's like, I put this like vase on top of the piano so it rattles, you know, and he's like, yes. I want to talk to him. That sounds amazing. <laughs> That's incredible. Yeah, it's really and particularly in a recording studio, right, where sometimes someone's like, I'm wasting four hours of your time trying to figure out where this hum comes from that only I can hear, you know? And you're like, oh man. <laughs> yeah. Thank you by the hour. That's <laughs> <Yeah>, not cheap. <laughs> yeah. Um, and he's really transformational in that way. He's great to be around. That's incredible. I'm glad you like his music. Yeah. I feel like old people know him now. So I'm glad that youngins like yourself are appreciating him. I like real and raw music. I feel like there's so much that's highly produced and like too, it's like robotic. It's like how perfect yeah. music is now. And I like music that feels human. Yeah. When is, I use this quote, he, I think he taught this quote to me, but I use it in the creative process a lot too, but he's always, he has this thing where he says, um, Dolly Parton said it, 
that it uh, costs a lot of money to look this cheap. <laughs> you know, and it's like, it takes a lot of work to make something that sounds like people are just hanging out. It doesn't come from people just hanging out. It comes from creating a space where people feel really comfortable and that takes a long time. I aspire to that. Yeah. Oh. Well, right, thank you. Thank you so much. You. Have an Thanks amazing day. Take care. If you guys stuck around for that extra last bit, I hope you enjoyed it. Daniel was such a delight to speak with, and I hope that if you have not read any of his books, you will check them out, as they are so fun to read, incredibly clever, and insightful. You can get more of him at danielhandler.com and find links to all of his books there. I'll link to his website in the show notes as well. Thank you so much for listening. I know you have a million other things you could be doing, so I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day. If this episode felt impactful for you, I would be so grateful if you could share it with one person who you think would enjoy it. If you'd like to help support my livelihood, there are links in the show notes to support me through Patreon or through Anchor through a monthly donation. My EP will be out May 25th on all streaming platforms, so if you are a music lover, I'd be honored if you'd go and check that out wherever you listen to music. I hope you have an awesome rest of your day, and I'll see you back here for next week's episode. Be well, fail big, and go wreck your perfection.